This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We were talking, of course, with Staff Sergeant Mark Ka- uh, Matt Cavanaugh in and around uh, the shooting that happened uh, up on Mount Albion the other day, and then, of course, talking about uh, the situation in the U- in the United States uh, and such, and and just you know thinking how do we best keep safe in our home, especially if you are in a situation where there are a lot of people living in the same place, i.e., townhouse complexes, i.e., apartment buildings, condos, this sort of thing. There's been a situation situation where uh, Toronto uh, renters are uh, very upset with remote security systems after a homeless man has been found or was found asleep in shared spaces. This apparently has been an ongoing issue uh, in the city cores as some of these security systems aren't necessarily what they should be. To talk more about all of this, David Hyde is with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates, and he's on with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. You know, uh, I'm in a house now, but I remember many years living in apartment buildings. And I always wondered about this, whether it was a condo, an apartment building. And obviously, the more money you spend, the greater the security seems to be within uh, the unit itself or in the apartment building itself. But I've always been concerned about the main entrance and how easy or relatively easy it is to get into one of these situations. Is, is this something that we're paying enough attention to? Scott, I, I don't think it is. I mean, um, you know, I've reviewed hundreds of condominium apartment buildings uh, throughout my career, and I find kind of some common themes, right? One of them is the fact that there's very little thought put in at the design phase of these condos and apartment buildings as to the security. They don't typically hire security consultants. They typically kind of try to make do with people that sell the systems who have a vested interest in selling more cameras and selling different types of systems. So very often we don't get a good design from the get-go. Then the people that get handed the building to manage uh, on behalf of all the apartment dwellers or condo owners, um, they're kind of behind the eight ball. They have to try and ram security into an environment that may not be too conducive for it. Um, this case, how, just let me interrupt. Just let me interrupt there, David. How how do you specifically, what, during the design phase of a building, make sure that you're covering these aspects? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole um, process called crime prevention through environmental design, or the acronym SEPTED. It's quite well known uh, in North America, Scott. And really, what it comes down to is designing an environment so it's conducive for communal living, but it's really not conducive to attract trespassing and, cr- and criminals. So there's a well known um, you know, principles that go into this, such as we want to avoid concealed areas, hidden spots. We want things to be quite observable so that if someone's trying to break into somewhere or trying to, you know, do something that they shouldn't be doing, they're not doing it behind a, you know, a, a gate or behind right. a fence or in an area that they can't be seen. And there's many other different approaches where we design security in so that the bad guy who wants to come to this building is going to be going to have difficulty. They can't access it very well. The stairwell design, Scott, the accesses, the fire exits, the various alarms that are put on different doors, hmm. positioning of cameras, all of these things should be designed at the beginning so we get the right design in place. Unfortunately, like I said, very often, um, there's no one thinking about this. The building's designed with, without crime prevention in mind. And then it, be- it comes down to the residents that have to deal with Things like homeless people sleeping in the building, things such as parking garages that are open to tailgating, and buildings that have really are wide open and aren't very well protected. All of these things, many of them, can be reduced by smart design. And then, of course, by having systems that work um, as, as they're designed to work. Uh, some of the newer systems have replaced people or security guards being in them. Elaborate a little bit more on these systems, and are, are, is, this the way the, is this the way to go? How do you balance personnel versus high-tech? Well, you know, and it, we're facing this in many environments, Scott. Yeah. It's not just in the security field. It's in, you know, general manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, where kind of computers and automation and remote activities are taking over local, local jobs, if you will. Here the case is it's called remote concierge or virtual concierge. It's a real, real push in the last four or five years in the apartment condominium industry. Rather than go to the front door, you're hitting the buzzer to get through, let's say, to the resident or to talk to the concierge security person. You get an individual that's sitting in a, in a control center. It could be in a different country mm. or it could be you know, in a central location. And now you're speaking to them and they have the ability to speak to you two-way and to maybe buzz you into the building or let you into the residence. The problem is these people aren't on site. 
They can't really see that well sometimes what's around you. They might not be able to discern who's safe, who should go, who should not go. And the problem is that as this um, recent media articles were highlighting, it's becoming more popular, these virtual concierges. But what we're finding in many buildings is that you know, trespassers have a much easier way to get in. They're able to, to bypass some of these systems without having somebody in the lobby of the building or somebody that's actually patrolling and on site. You lose that level of guardianship, Scott, which is a very key portion of crime prevention. And people quickly find out that there's nothing more than a TV screen there with someone sitting in a control center half a world away sometimes. And that's not very effective security in many cases. Are there that many condos, apartments that still have someone downstairs manning this stuff? Absolutely. I mean, particularly in the condominium market, Scott, yeah. but also in the, in the large-scale apartment buildings. Obviously, when, when you have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people stacked up high, we have uh, um, fire um, issues in terms of fire prevention and fire response that are very critical. We have access control requirements. There's a myriad parcels being delivered. There's mm. move-ins and move-outs, and there's, you know, all manner of things that, that's happening in that building. And someone needs to be, to be running that. Someone needs to be overseeing those aspects. So, yeah, it's very common now in many large-scale condominium buildings particularly to have somebody in the lobby as a concierge-type security person that's kind of overseeing that and being a guardian for the building. Unfortunately, Scott, the other reality is these people are often paid minimum wage. Mm. The condo corporations and property managers don't really see the value of paying these people a living wage. So sometimes what you get is, not really the the right quality of individual in there. Mm -hmm. So, look, people are living in these buildings, Scott. It's a very, you know, as we've seen densification uh, and and more condos being built, more and more people, even later in life, are living in these condominium and apartment buildings. So it's really important that we get the security ingredients right. How do you, or what advice would you have for someone who's in one of these buildings, whether it's an apartment building, uh, just an average apartment building, or a condo that has these sorts of facilities? How do you stay safe in an environment where there are so many people coming and going? Well, it's really a matter of speaking to the property management and the board of directors on the condominium corporation and making sure that security is top of mind. Unfortunately, Scott, security is often not top of mind until some units get broken into or until someone gets assaulted in the parking garage or something like this. But to be proactive on this, I mean, these things could happen anytime, anywhere. There's no such thing as perfect security, but apartment dwellers and condo livers should approach the management company, approach the condominium corporation, the board, and ask them what they're doing about security. What are they doing about access control? How secure is the building? What happens if there is a break-in? How are things getting reported? How are we preventing these things from happening? What kind of programs are in place to respond if there's a fire alarm go off or some kind of emergency? These are all things that should be top of mind in any building. And the residents need to step forward and take ownership of these items because they might protect Scott their apartment door. Maybe they have a strong lock on there, even an alarm system on there, which is great. But in the common corridors yeah. and the front door to the building and the parking garage, these are items that are common areas. And sometimes the ownership over those is much less than the ownership over the apartment uh, you know, uh, unit itself. And perhaps some are feeling more secure than they should simply because they do have that adequate stuff on the unit themselves. But again, it's those common areas that you have to be cautious of. Well, Scott, most people aren't hermits, and I understand yeah. that people are going to feel safe inside their home or inside of their apartment you know, unit or condo unit, that's, and that's true. And they should feel safe inside there. They live there, of course, but they have to leave to go to the, to the store, mm-hmm. to work, to see friends, to do whatever they, you know, and they have people and family and loved ones coming and going. So there is an interest, they have an interest in making sure that the common elements of the building are safe and secure. And in that regard, sometimes there are opportunities to improve, whether it be staffing, whether it be systems, cameras, access control, whether it be mechanical security, and just the procedures. Sometimes it's just a building superintendent, Scott, in the building. Hmm. Might not be a security person, but they need to know about security awareness. They need to be able to help residents with security concerns also. All right. uh, Before we let you go, I have to ask you your opinion on this, considering uh, what's happening south of the border. Washington Post, the headline says, half of likely U.S. voters say they are concerned about Violence Day on Election Day. Uh, What's your take on that? How How do you react to that? I'm concerned, too. You know, I mean, you, you know, you, you watch things that are playing out. Obviously, you can argue whether your political views are one way or the other. You can kind of point fingers and, and say who's to blame. 
But at the end of the day, there's always a degree of rancor, Scott, in politics. But I think this is different. I think that Donald Trump has really, you know, um, landed on something and hit a nerve amongst certain portions of the population that feel as though their needs have never been met and aren't being met in the current kind of situation with the mainstream politics and the mainstream media, frankly, in many cases. People feel that the reality is being, um, you know, kind of distorted by the media in some cases. So there, there may well be a backlash or, or, or not, you know, an anger that comes out of certain things that may happen, whether the election goes one way or the other. So I am concerned about it. I think that the level of risk, Scott, is higher now than probably we've had since the 60s in terms of the civil rights movement and some mm. of the, the issues that we had back then. And I am concerned about it, and I think that governments should be concerned about it and should be looking at ways to try and tamp this down. And, Scott, the media have responsibility too. You can't, you can't report so heavily on one side, whichever mm-hmm. side you believe in, um, and to, you know, to the exclusion of another side, for example, you know, re- reporting all Trump's, um, not much as I don't particularly support Trump or Clinton, frankly, either of them, um, but you know, supporting all Trump's negatives and all horrible things that he's uh, you know, uh, claimed to have done, but ignoring the WikiLeaks revelations and other fa- aspects on the other side. Yeah. So I think that the reporting needs to be more even, and I think that that tends to fuel um, the public's anger if their view is... Is, is, you know, if they're being fed information and they believe yeah. is not representative of the reality. Do you think we will see extra security at polling stations this year? I do. Yeah. I, I mean, certainly, I think it's going to be based on threat and risk, Scott. So, you know, in, and obviously in, in areas where there's a belief that there may be more issues, again, exactly how they'll determine that, I don't know. But perhaps larger cities, perhaps areas where there have been threats or there have been other reasons to believe with local law enforcement that there may be some backlash. I do expect to see heightened security. I do expect to see heightened sensitivity. And I'd expect to see, you know, response forces that are on the ready in the event there is, um, you know, violence or, or something that kicks off in a certain area to do with the polling station. There'd be like a response force in larger law enforcement groups that could respond there quite quickly. So I do. I think this is unprecedented in terms of the level of threat. I don't want to be alarmist, Scott. I hope nothing bad happens. But you can only watch what's being reported, only see what's unfolding on social media to get a feel for the type of potential for violence that's there. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. David, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. You too, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have, uh, I don't know how much you're plugged into uh, this free trade agreement that uh, has been trying to be uh, negotiated between the European Union and Canada. And uh, over the last sort of over the last week, um, they've had the plane fueled up and ready to go if uh, we need the prime minister over there to sign this thing. And then there's there's been this little place called Wallonia that for some reason is putting a stick in the spokes of all of this. To talk more about it, Marvin Ryder is uh, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at Group School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, this landmark free trade agreement between the European Union and Canada, uh, they say, could be signed within days. Mar- Marvin is here with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? Oh, hang on. We got Marvin. Standby. Marvin, are you there? I'm here. Okay, there you are, Marvin. How are you today? I'm I'm fine, thank you. And how are you? I'm doing very well. As soon as we figure out how to get the phones working here, I'm good. So, first of all, give us an update. Where are we on this deal? Is it a go? Is it not a go? Well, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to take you a half step back, and then I'll tell you where we stand. So why are we interested in this deal in the first place? I think the average listener knows that the United States is Canada's largest trading partner. But I also think the average listener does not know that the European Union, collectively, is our second largest trading partner. Trade with the European Union is running around 75 to $80 billion a year. The United States trade is more like a half a trillion dollars a year. So we're not in the same order of magnitude, but it's our second largest partner. Seven years ago, under Stephen Harper, the negotiations began on free trade with the European Union. And uh, the hope had been that today, uh, October 27th, our prime minister was going to fly over there. There would be a summit, a meeting of all the leaders of the EU, along with Mr. Trudeau. And then at the end of it, the crowning glory was going to be signing this deal. Hmm. What's in the deal that's so important? 98% of all tariffs would be eliminated between Canada and the European Union. 
and the boost in trade would add about $30 billion. So we'd go from about $80 billion a year between us to over $100 billion a year, still not anywhere near the size of the American market, but at a time we want to stimulate the economy, all increases are good increases. So about three weeks ago, though, we had a little hitch. Now, this is partly how the deal was negotiated. We did the deal with the European Union, but the European Union insisted that each member country approve it. So there's 28 member countries, Mm -hmm. and everything was going just fine until we got to Belgium. And in Belgium, the rule is that the government in Belgium can approve it if and only if all the provinces within Belgium or territories within Belgium approve it. There's only three or four of them, and one of them is this little French-speaking area called Wallonia, population of about three million people, and they put their foot down and said, no, we're not going to agree with it. We veto this deal. Because they vetoed it, Belgium couldn't sign. Because Belgium couldn't sign, we don't have a a CETA agreement. Uh, Last week, our minister, Christia Freeland, was over there. She did her best to clarify the agreement. She didn't want to reopen the agreement, but she wanted to clarify language and terminology. And the nice people in Wallonia said, well, thank you. That was interesting, yes, but we're still not prepared to sign it. So she walked away from the talks. On the weekend, the head of the European Union said, this isn't Canada's fault. This is our problem. We'll take charge of this. And then he immediately turned to Belgium and said, fix it. So, <laughs> so then Belgium said to Wallonia, you got 24 hours and then sign. What would you guess? Well, Wallonia backed away from that and said, wait a minute, we're a democracy. We don't take threats very well. And as of yesterday, I assume this day would pass without an agreement. But instead, we woke up this morning, and lo and behold, last night, Belgium and Wallonia had agreed to some clarifying language. Uh, The language involves two things. One is agriculture. There's a fear, as we have here in Canada when we bring in foreign imports, that somehow local farmers would be hurt. And the other fear was around uh, international trade settlements. Wallonia in particular, not unlike Hamilton, have seen international companies buy companies in their area and then shut them down and move the production elsewhere. They didn't want these international companies to be able to run roughshod over their rules. So Belgium and Wallonia have come up with clarifying language, and now Belgium says we can sign the deal. Well, that's good news, but not great news, because the clarifying language now has to be approved by the other 27 members of the European Union, and we have to approve it as well. Uh, And so I'm going to tell you, the Belgians tell us, look, this is just minor language changes. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. But until we actually see what the words say, we may still not have a free trade deal. So after the language has been modified, will the others then accept it? Exactly. And and we just don't know. Now, the, because seven years have gone into this, for, for the European Union, not only is the seven years at stake, but I think the hope had been that the deal they strike with Canada, and by the way, while European Union is our second largest trading partner, for the European Union, we're their 12th largest trading partner. We're not the biggest thing going. Mm-hmm. But the European Union would like to use our agreement as a template to negotiate free trade, maybe with Japan, maybe with China, maybe with the United States, maybe even with, oh yes, Britain, who's thinking about leaving the European Union. This could become the template. So for them, it isn't so much the deal with Canada is so big, but that it would set the precedent that they could then use in these other deals going forward. Was Wallonia the recipient of any funds in any way to get them to change their mind? So the answer, again, is no. The European Union had mused about it, and there was a high-profile European Union politician who said, I wonder if they need some new roads built there, or maybe, maybe we can upgrade their airport for them in exchange for the vote. And that worked totally against it. The Wallonians got their backup. How dare you suggest our vote can be bought? And found it so. very politically incorrect, didn't they? Exactly. Yeah. So no, no money changed hands, uh, but instead their wishes. In a way, Scott, if I can draw you back to an old movie that you might vaguely remember, there was a movie starring Peter Sellers called The Mouse That Roared hmm. about a, a fictional uh, grand duchy that stood up to the United States, uh, declared war against the United States one day, gave up the next day, and then wanted their foreign aid to help rebuild after the war was over. It's a bit like this. Wallonia is just three and a half million people. They stood up to the wishes of 500 million people, and for three weeks, the eyes of the world have been upon them. Uh, would You mentioned that this had been started back in the Harper days, long before Brexit. Did Brexit change the tone of this at all? 
Well, I think it upped the stakes in the sense that um, the American free trade agreement, so they've actually been negotiating, the European Union has been negotiating free trade with the United States, but that all work on that file has stopped because we don't know who's going to get elected. And you know Donald Trump has had very anti-free trade rhetoric in his mm. campaign. Conceivably, if he's elected, any deal with the United States is over. So I think with the Brexit exit, uh, with the Brexit exit, good Marvin, uh, coming mm. up ahead, mm. I, I think the stakes have gone up for the European Union. Remember, uh, uh, England hasn't even filed the paperwork to leave yet. They're not going to do that till the end of March next year, and then it's going to be two years. Well, that's not a lot of time if they could take the Canadian agreement, do a blank copy and replace, <laughs> insert Great Britain for Canada everywhere through, this would speed up the process. So in that sense, I think the stakes are higher. I don't think it hurt the negotiation. So uh, would this have, uh, obviously Brexit is, uh, I guess, affecting the tone of these discussions. Can you take a template like it's being used with Canada and use that for the UK or or any of the rest of the, them involved in the Brexit vote? I mean, is it one size fits all? Well, I'm going to say yes in this sense, that this negotiating process, why it took seven years, was that each member nation in the European Union had to tell, uh, I will, the other members, here are my concerns about free trade. You know, I want this protected, I want that protected, I'm prepared to open this, I'm prepared to open that. So we now know everybody's on the record about the magical things they need and the things that they'll tolerate or the things that they won't tolerate in a deal. So that's all on the table now. You don't have to then reopen the kimono, if you will, and see what it is for the next deal. We know all of that already. By the way, one other quick note about Brexit. While the European Union is our second largest trading partner, almost half of the trade with the European Union is with Britain. So as Britain leaves, what we've not done in the last 20 years is deepen our ties to people like France and Germany and Hungary and Poland and Italy. This free trade deal, especially now that Britain looks like it's leaving, is going to give us a chance to get into markets that we really haven't tapped yet with Canadian products, and it's a very forward-looking deal in that way. So rather than than CETA complicating the whole Brexit thing, this could actually make it easier. It sure could, and it could, for us, allow us now uh, probably a separate free trade deal with Great Britain, uh, although I don't think that's a high priority for Britain at the moment, but I can imagine five years down the road we might have that, but also a free trade deal with what Britain is leaving, an area that we used to be able to kind of get into via Britain, so we'd sell products to Britain and then Britain would get them into Europe. Now we're going to do it directly, and that's better for our jobs and for our companies. Can places like a Scotland use this if they decide to bail? Well, that, yes, that becomes more interesting. Scotland has two problems. One would be the trade problem, so they can certainly use it there. But then there's, of course, the political problem, because at this moment, Scotland is not independent of England. So they'd have to solve that. This is really a deal between independent states or, or self-governing states, and Scotland doesn't have that uh, at this moment. And uh, again, what I think is interesting, when Britain was a member of the European Union and Scotland was thinking of going, the European Union made it very clear that Scotland would not be granted immediate entry. It would follow the same rules as anyone else trying to enter the European Union. But now that Britain is gone or is going from the European Union, they may very well change their tune. It'll be interesting to watch as those start to take place in 2017 and 2018. So what does CETA mean for Canada? Um, more more uh, selling of our products abroad, which should help our manufacturing. Now, it's not a big market. I know when I throw out a number like $13 billion to Canada, $17 billion to the European Union in trade, $30 billion, you and I, that's a lot of money, $30 billion. But in terms of our economy, we typically measure our volume of trade in trillions of dollars, it really is just a tiny blip, but it's the right thing to do as we look down the road. While initially it's $13 billion, it could be so much more if we use that foot in the door and leverage that to increase Canada's presence in those underserved markets, again, like Poland and Hungary, hmm. the Czech Republic. These are, these are markets that we've ignored. Why? Because, of course, English is not their native language. It's not really part of our native culture. But it has changed. Again, thanks to immigration, we have many more people in Canada today who have Eastern European roots. We need to leverage that and get our products into those markets. It's going to secure jobs at home. The fact that this deal finally looks like it will be done, does this prove to the EU and the UK that there is a solution in Brexit, then you can come out the other side and everybody will be fine? And it's even more than that, really, Scott, given the, the um, stakes going on in the American election, at a time that 
many people are sort of anti-free trade, and let's put the barriers up, let's put the walls up, let's put the tariffs back. It's a statement on Canada's part and the European Union that we still believe in the power of trade and the power of opening markets to one another and encouraging more trade as we go forward. And, and, and it's a very interesting statement. You can remember when President Obama visited Ottawa, he said the world needs more Canada. And this is a very Canadian approach, a very Canadian statement to make at the same time that other people in the world think they should be closing borders and pulling back. We're saying, no, we think the future is more open trade. And it's a, less, it's a, it's a message that I think resonates on a world stage, especially since our neighbor to the south seems to be sending the opposite signal uh, to the extent that we're looking for things like a seat on the Security Council. A pro-trade Canada looks like a much better partner to have on the Security Council than the anti-trade United States. How can Trump be so anti-trade if the Republicans are so free trade? Well, <laughs> you know, that's does, a good question. Where's the and balance? I'll give, and I'll give you a second version of this. I honestly don't believe that Hillary Clinton is that much anti-trade. She has been forced to come out as being opposed to the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because right now it's not popular to say you are. But I am feel 99% certain that under a, a Clinton presidency, she would probably sign it. But I think what Donald's trying to do is to tap into the popular feeling. Take the average Canadian. I know many Canadians feel that we have lost due to NAFTA and U.S. free trade. Though, Marvin, all of our jobs went south of the border. Most studies of free trade actually suggest the Canadian economy is better today than it would have been without free trade, that we have roughly 10% more trade than we would have had otherwise. Yes, certain sectors were harmed. Yes, we lost jobs in certain sectors. But in other sectors, we gained jobs. A good example in Canada is telecommunication. We're among the world's leaders in telecommunication technology because we have a small population base spread across a very large country. We've learned to bridge those gaps, and we can sell that technology to others. I know it's not as sexy as making steel or as interesting as making cars, but the future really is in higher technology, and these deals have positioned us that way. And you bring up a valid point. We do have such a small population on the world stage, and we produce more than we consume, so how can you not trade it? That, and, that's, and that's really the key. In the last hundred years, why we have enjoyed the standard of living we had is that we sat on the border of the world's largest, most powerful economic market, which is the United States. But as I look into this century that we're in, the 21st century, very quickly, China is going to dominate. Very quickly after that, India is going to dominate. Possibly by the year 2100, it will be Indonesia in third place. Those are three markets that we have not been cultivating and developing for our products. If we want to continue to enjoy this standard of living going forward, we've got to start opening those doors. And we have to start opening them now, not because the trade today is going to be that huge, but it can build over time. Just imagine if we had ignored the United States as it developed in the 20th century and only focused on Britain. Think of the mistake that would have been. That's what we'd be doing if we're turning our back on trade to places like China and India and Indonesia, or in this case, the European Union, which as a block is bigger than North America. Why does the European, Can uh, European Union care so much about Canada when obviously we're their biggest trading partner, but they're not ours? Or one of them, rather. <laughs> Yeah, we'll do it the other way around. So the European Union is the second largest trading right. partner of Canada. Canada is the 12th, 12th largest trading partner with Europe. But why they care, I think, is, again, Europe's been going through a tough few years. Uh, you've had the, the near bankruptcies in Greece and Italy and in Portugal and Spain even. Uh, Italy and Ireland have gone through some tough times. Uh, we've had you know, some of the bombings going on there. They've been flooded with refugees. This has not been the last five, six years happy times for the European economy. Believe it or not, I know this may sound odd, but CETA is one of the biggest, brightest spots they've seen on their horizon. It finally says we can get beyond these internal problems and focus on international. And again, because getting this deal done, not that big, but sets the stage for more deals, which would really have a profound effect on the European economy for the next 25, 30 years. How is Canada outshining the United States? Uh, maybe not in sheer numbers, but simply in attitude. And how does the United States get back up on top, at least in, in terms of perception? I mean, they're, they're always the biggest. They've been there and, and so on and so forth behind China and the rest. But how do they change their image coming out of this election? How do they move forward from this? So there's two aspects of this. Of course, we had a, a new, young, vibrant 
handsome-looking prime minister elected a year ago. And I know that's all about style, but he made a splash on the world market at the same time that the American leader became a lame duck. So nobody dislikes Barack Obama. He still has more than 50% approval ratings, but no one really listens to him now because he isn't the one who's actually going to be implementing it. There has been such a cantankerous election going on in the United States, and it's been going on for so long. All of us can hardly wait to November 8th because of how, how much yeah. they've been talking for so long. And as a result, their star has dimmed on the world stage. Now, how do you get that back? Well, you'd elect someone who had a better agenda for the world. And, and I'm going to say this frankly again. I think that's Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump scares a lot of people. Hillary does not. So that'd be the first step. And then the second one is to, to shift your priorities. Under George W. Bush, the United States was known as the world's policeman. Every time there's a hot spot, we're sending troops. We got boots on the ground. We'll, we'll blow them up. Even Donald Trump has suggested he'd blow them up. Hillary says there is more to this. So as under Barack Obama, for instance, they settled the longstanding dispute with Iran. They've now got Iran trading again. That helps their economy. It's those kind of signals that say we're not a military power. We're interested in a more rounded approach. Canada got there first with our new prime minister. He signaled those things earlier. Hillary might be able to do that if she's elected. We'll have to see how much she has coattails. If she can bring along the Senate, and the bonus would be if she could bring along the House, she could dramatically change the image over the next four years. The more the House and the Senate are controlled by Republicans, the more she'll be hamstrung in trying to change the image. Are other leaders looking at Trudeau and how he has sold our brand? Yes, absolutely, around the world. So this is why, again, it didn't get a lot of play, but he, you might remember about a month, month and a half ago, he visited China. Mm -hmm. And the leader of China at that time said, you know, Mr. Trudeau, we'd like to talk to you about free trade with China. Now, Mr. Trudeau played that down a little bit. That deal would be much more complicated for many, many reasons, and, and not the least of which is the way China views intellectual property rights, things like copyright and trademark, what have you. But the fact that China even opened the door, they haven't opened that door with the United States. They haven't opened that door with Japan. It says something about how he's making a, a, an impression on the world marketplace. Now, again, with China, it doesn't hurt that he's the son of the man who really helped drop the bamboo curtain in the 60s when he did landmark visits there. But that legacy does us very well at this time. Hmm. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Take care, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, an interesting article that's appeared this week came out of Nevada. The spec has picked up on it. Uh, Amy Wang did a, a story on it in the spec. The headline, It's My Decision, Woman Auctioning Off Her Virginity to Help Her Family. We've certainly heard about this before. It's not a new story. Uh, this woman right now is at the Kit Kat Ranch, uh, one of Nevada's legal brothels. Uh, but she is the only virgin there. The 21-year-old has been living there since May, learning the ropes, uh, but not for sex. Instead, she's going to auction off her virginity to the highest bidder. Uh, oddly enough, she says she's going to auction it off to the uh, largest bidder, but still wants to save herself for someone special. Uh, bids right now sitting at about $400,000. Uh, obviously, her family uh, is in uh, rough shape. Uh, parents split up. I understand that uh, uh, lost her home due to fire uh, very recently. And this is her way of getting out of uh, this financial difficulty and getting back on track. Is this where we have come? And although it certainly isn't the, the first time, and I'm sure it won't be the last, is there anything wrong with selling your virginity. Your thoughts on that? The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell, or you can send me a note at scottthompson at 900chml.com. Let's bring in Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works, and he is with us now. Hello, Theo. How are you today? Oh, hang on. I keep screwing up the phone. A little faint. What's that? Say that again. No, it's okay. I hear you now. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm having problems with the phones today. Theo, I've been following your Facebook post. Did you get your dang squirrel situation figured out? I did. I, I conquered overall, Scott, and I actually wrote a story about it, and I'm waiting to see if I won a prize. <laughs> Good for you. It's the little things in life. I'm hoping for 400000 Good for you. Uh, anything, what, what are your thoughts when you hear of stories like this, Theo? I think they're really interesting, and I, and I think they raise really 
great questions about um, things like, um, you know, people's rights. Does it? How do you determine exploitation? Who decides? Does it, can a person decide for themselves whether they're exploited? Uh, or whether are they so exploited that they don't even know they're being exploited? Hmm. Uh, and it even raises, a, a, I think, a bigger question as to this whole concept of what exactly is virginity. Uh, and why is it such a commodity? Why do people want to pay 400000 uh, uh to pay for it, to, to have it, whatever that is? Uh, is? Is there such a thing? What does it actually mean to be a virgin? I think it, it's really a fascinating kind of a conversation. Like you that. bring up a valid point. Who, what type of person pays four hundred grand for a virgin? Yeah, so it raises larger questions. Is like what conditions have to be happening in society for people to feel like they need to sell their bodies? And so um, maybe, um, I'm going to sound cynical, but maybe the kind of person who is willing and able to pay $400,000 to someone for their virginity is the person who earned a few million dollars bonus for cutting a bunch of jobs in their company so they can be profitable, creating thus creating a bunch of new people who need to sell their bodies to make enough money to get by. Hmm. So, you know, we, we can, you know, one response is always, you know, and I see this on online, a lot of people really sort of hammering her about how immoral she is and other people fighting her battle in terms of her right to choose and other people talking about her being exploited. But maybe, you know, maybe the bigger picture is to look at the larger context, like what has to be happening in society where there is this perceived need by people that this is the way that they need to be able to provide for themselves. Need and a demand, evidently. Yeah, and again, that demand is, again, what is the story of virginity? What does that actually mean? You know, what, what exactly is virginity? Is, is it about penetration? Is it about uh, body tissue? Is it, is, it, what, is it about sex? Is it about making love? Like, at what point are you non, no longer a virgin? And, and for a woman, from a woman's perspective, how is it that so, for so long and, and still ongoing, your value as a, as a, as a woman uh, has to do with some sort of virginity, which is linked to some moral purity? Hmm. Uh, what about those that would say, you're going to lose it anyway, why not make some money out of it? Well, again, I'm going to go back to it. What is it? And I, I really think... This is I would presume question. that would be the first experience with sexual intercourse. Well, why is it intercourse, though? Yeah. Like, that, that's the whole point. You know, I don't want to sound like Bill Clinton. I did not have sexual... Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, like, why is... And, and this is an important thing, because I have had in my in my practice, I've had women... Uh, come to me and they're distraught. Young women come to me and distraught, and they've been raped. And they say, I was saving it for marriage. I wanted to be a virgin. I wanted to give that to somebody else. And and so, you know, I explore with them, like, what does it actually mean to be a virgin? What does it mean to be able to share yourself with someone? Have you really lost your virginity? What is it, you know, is that, isn't that something that you would define yourself as opposed to that it has to do with whether or not someone forced themselves on you or took something from you. I mean, I think, I think that whole concept of virginity is, uh, is a sort of a link to a story of women being property and, and having to prove that they're worth a commodity to some man who receives that woman from another man who's giving that woman to him. And we, we still have that idea in, in, in society, and there's many places in the world where where women are forced to take some sort of virginity test to make sure that they're okay for marriage, and they can be killed if they're not pure enough, meaning they yeah. had, their hymen has somehow been affected. Well, so, clearly we haven't moved that far forward if, we are still having, if we're still talking about stories like this. Well, well that's what I'm talking about. I think yeah. we can get all wound up about the morality, whether or not people should make that choice or not, and that's, that's an interesting conversation. Uh, I, I mean, I struggle with anyone telling another person what they can or cannot do in either way, um, but the larger picture is, why is this a story? Why is it such a big deal? And what does that say about women, their, their own bodies, their understanding of sexuality, our understanding of women's sexuality, and whether or not it's still linked to this idea that if, if you engage in a particular physical activity and it must be some sort of penetrative experience, then A, you've, you've had sex, and B, you're not as pure as you were before. And that somehow diminishes your value, and you should feel ashamed of that and somehow make up for it in other ways. Hmm. That, I think that's a bigger picture. That's a bigger story. You bring up a valid point, too, about what is a virgin and, you know, us trying to come up with some sort of definition of it. Uh, she's been there since May, quote, learning the ropes and entertaining clients, but not for sex, but 
we understand other things. So as you mentioned, does that still make her pure? Is she still a virgin if she's done pretty much everything else except had intercourse? Well, again, who decides that for her, right? So, you know, her saying, well, I have never had a penis in my vagina, so I'm not a virgin. I guess that's her way of being able to define that. And if we buy into that, that's what virginity is all about. I guess maybe that to somebody else is worth $400,000. But I think that our audience would be more sophisticated than that and understand that being sexual and and being pure and being able to uh, experience relationship with other people does not hinge necessarily just on one specific act. That sexuality is a lot larger than just one part of your body being impacted by another part of the body. And what, what, what does that constitute? I mean, does it mean when someone else penetrates you? Well, what if you penetrate yourself? What is that not sexual? What if you're in a relationship? What if you're in a lesbian relationship? Mm. Is, there's no. Is there is there no penis? So there must yeah. not. That person still like it. It's just. The whole idea of virginity being so narrowly focused around this idea of it's either intact or not intact, and if it's not, then you're not as worth as much as someone who who is it's not that it is intact. So, so I guess if she she her hymen was not affected somehow, and by the way, her hymen isn't this gate between that a complete barrier that's broken or not. It's 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 or else how in the world could you end up men- menstruating if you, it was the case? Yeah. So it's not like this thing that this wall that you have to force your way through to conquer that a lot of people think it is. Uh, but but you know if we if we define it like that, what, why what kind of value do we put on women who have had sex? Does yeah. that mean that they're not worth four hundred thousand dollars to be with them? Uh, some may say more because they're more experienced. Um, well, again, uh, you would you. Some people might value that and say, well, yeah. you know, I would prefer to be with someone that even knows what they're doing. But again, that's the right of that person who's having sex, who has, that's their body, to be able to define for themselves. Uh, auctioning off her virginity to the highest bidder, and she says she wants to save herself for someone special. How is that possible when you're asking for the highest bidder? Well, uh, maybe she is only going to um, have... Uh, Intercourse, let's call it intercourse as opposed to, I'm, I'm going to, you know, move away from this whole, she's not a virgin or she's, she is a virgin, but maybe she is only going to have intercourse with someone who she both respects and cares for and who has $400,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so a, how does that, how, second, how does that sit with you? that's why she's waiting. <laughs> she hasn't taken the first bidder. She's that's waiting right, for someone right. that she can appreciate and be able to get $400,000 from it. It's, it's, possible. it's hard to find someone with $400,000 who is also a good guy, I guess. Is that what we're saying here? <laughs> who knows? Who knows what she's saying? But again, she, in this case, is saying uh, she, again, maybe by other people's standards, that seems odd, but maybe she's saying, look, I still have standards. I still, it's not just about the money. Uh, this is going to be a specific experience to me. This is going to be somehow meaningful to me, and so it's not enough just to have cash. You also have to be a good person that I can appreciate being with. And we can say, well, that's just kind of silly, but that's what she's saying. Yeah. Um, uh, get uh, Playing devil's advocate again, uh, you're going to get it anyway. Why not get some cash for it? I mean, if we think back to our own first sexual experience, if you look back at that now, would you give that up for someone for four hundred thousand bucks? I'm I'm thinking there might be a few that go, oh yeah, in a nanosecond. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, did you, you offer me that? I, I'm I you know look back. If I on could it. go back on that experience again, sure, I'd take the four hundred grand instead of that. I I take the four hundred grand. Would never have had that experience. <laughs> well, there you go. So why are we so cr- why are we so cranked out about this? Um, I, I mean, I, because but there is also the undercurtain of possible exploitation. And I think about it as a similar, sort of a similar story that has recently been on the news about, do people have the right to sell their blood? Do people have the right to sell a yep. kidney? Mm-hmm. Um, and so people say, is that ethical or not ethical? And again, I think the larger picture is, um, uh, what kind of society are we living in where there are so many people that would consider that to be a viable option? That's the bigger picture. So you, people can get all morally outraged, but I happen to find my experience is that oftentimes the people who are like the most morally outraged are doing very little about the larger picture, which is how are you going about contributing to a society or calling into question uh, sort of aspects of society where these conditions are more likely to happen. It's all well and good to say, oh, this, this is wrong. You're not supposed to sell your kidney. You're not supposed to sell blood. You're not supposed to sell your virginity, whatever that is. 
that's just immoral. Okay, but what are you doing about the larger picture in order to make it so that there aren't all these people who are saying, maybe that is really the option that I really need to exercise? Uh, getting back to the type of person that's willing to pay for this uh, sort of thing, uh, is this? it must be all about the conquest as opposed to great sex, no? Well, again, that I think you're right. And I think here's the thing, like, that's a, that's a story, historical story about male-female sexual relationships that, um, that that virgin, this pure virgin, no one else has touched that person. So they're not violated. They're not impure. And so, wow, I've got like a virgin that I can take. And so there's this idea that um, this male conquest of the female body, you know, that says something, that's a notch on my belt, that I've, I've done something, taken something that that otherwise someone else would have gotten to first. So I got purity before someone else did. Now, pity the poor fool who goes after me. She's no longer worth 400000 Who knows what she's worth now? But I've got this woman, and she's mine. I'm going to make use of her, and so that's worth it for me so I can feel a particular way about myself. And that's, again, a story of male-female relationships that certainly has been not particularly favorable to women. By looking for uh, someone... Um you know, by saying she's going to save herself for someone special and yet asking for $400, is she a gold digger in the sense that really what she's looking for is just a rich boyfriend or a rich husband? I mean, again, who knows? I mean, it's easy for us to sit back yeah. and, and, and make that call, make that decision. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know her. I haven't spent any time with her. I don't know what it's like to be her. Yeah. Um, so she's saying that this is possible for her. I don't know if it's possible for her, but she, that seems to be her reality. I'm not going to say, you know, that's, you know, you're just a gold digger. I don't know. She says that uh, this is something that she's thought about a lot. Her mom came with her. She seems to be some sort of a need. Uh, she doesn't seem to devalue herself based on her, her sort of way of describing herself. She seems to have some sort of self-respect. I don't know. Why should I argue with her? Now, I mean, other people listening go, that's crazy. Anyone who sells their whatever, virginity or their body, immediately must have low self-respect and uh, doesn't feel very good about themselves as a person and devalue themselves and allow themselves to be exploited. Maybe that's true for a lot of people. Who would, I mean, I couldn't argue that. That probably, that's for sure, I'm going to say that's for sure true. Many people get exploited. Does that mean that we can then say this specific person is and that we can't respect her voice and try to pay attention and listen carefully to see where she's coming from? She's still a human being. She still has rights to be able to have her own experience. Will this be something you think that she will be struggling with later in life? Do you think this is something that she'll regret and look back on and say, ah, I shouldn't have done that? I, you know what? I, I have You probably no can't idea. tell that either, can you? <laughs> Who could? Yeah. And again, it's so easy to say. Yep. I mean, how, how many people, a lot of people listening to us, look back on, on um, when they first had intercourse and don't really remember it all that positively and kind of regret it as well. She's at least got 400 grand to comfort herself. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you think this is becoming more and more common? Do you think that as society is going on, uh, as, as society continues, our morals are loosening up enough that this is becoming a viable option for some? Well, uh, I think there's a couple things going on. I think we are sort of detaching this whole uh, grip that um, morality has on sexuality, that necessarily that everything sexual is somehow a moral story tell something moral slash usually religious about who you are. So I think there's that case. I mean, for sure, women have made great strides around their own ability to be sexual without being seen as being sluts or tramps or whatever. You know, we were getting our heads around the idea that women actually like sex and it's natural for them. That's kind of cool. Uh, but the other thing is, I think there are some societal changes. And so one reflection of this is I've been hearing more and more stories of um, university or college girls uh, this used to be an unusual story, but now they're on special dating sites looking for a sugar daddy. Mm -hmm. So they're actually trading um, their relationship, their companionship, for an older, typically older man in order to pay the university bills. That used to be a fairly uncommon story. It seems to be there's entire dating yeah. sites now oriented around that. So again, we have to ask ourselves, is it because these girls are more immoral than they used to be? I don't know, maybe they're more liberated in terms of thinking they can make those choices, but also maybe we should really look at how hard it is for people to be able to get by these days. 
you know, what could we reevaluate how much it costs to go to university or college? Can we look at the enormous student loans that people oftentimes are saddled with for 40, 40 years, for crying out loud? They spend their entire lives paying off student loans. So we look at that larger picture and go, maybe there's some societal changes that we need to make instead of getting all wound up about the morality of these girls. Are we spending too much time talking about the girl selling the sex and not enough time about the guy who will pay for it? Well, for sure. That's, that's where I'm coming from, is, is why is this guy willing to pay for it? What does that say about this concept of virginity? What does this mean about women and their commodity and what we associate with purity? That's a better question to ask. What's going on that would still lead someone to pay $400,000 for this thing that, again, isn't even a discrete event? It's really a graduation of, like, sexuality. But what does that say about how people still see women, their bodies, and sexuality? Uh, One listener emailing in and saying, is this about fame? Is it about recognition? Is it about being seen? Who knows? I mean, possibly, possibly not. We can ask her, right? Mm -hmm. Just see what she says. Again, we can sit back. It's so easy to sit back and pick a person's uh, name out of the news and see something that sort of see a fraction of, of their story, but that gets reported and start making all these judgments about that person and saying, well, it's about fame. All right, well, let's suppose it is. So then what? Like, so what? Like, let's suppose it is. Then what do we... Still has the, she still has the right to do what she pleases, doesn't she? Well, I, you know, I, I guess that's the question. If she's motivated by fame, who are we to say she shouldn't be? And that somehow, you know, that's, that's, that somehow makes her less moral than someone who is only motivated to pay because the house got burned down. Um, you know, who are we to decide these things? I mean, I know there's male escorts as well, but how come we don't hear of this with guys? Well, that's the other thing, is uh, male virginity is not considered to be no. a, um, not a really thought-out uh, commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something to for men historically to be ashamed of and hide, as opposed to say, hey, I'm a male virgin and I'm really pure, so uh, I'm willing to sell that. So there's a double standard around what sexuality and virginity and purity actually means between men and women. And so, so that is why we're not hearing about male virginity being a commodity, because it's something that is not necessarily seen as a commodity. Men are supposed to have lots of sex, and that means that they're experiencing studs and all that kind of thing. And, and there's that rigid residual that a woman who has sex and, and enjoys it and, and, and has experienced it is somehow loose in a slut and somehow got some sort of disorder. A woman is auctioning off her virginity. Catherine Stone of Seattle now working at a Nevada brothel, a brothel and bids have uh, reportedly reached $400,000. Theo Sellis has been with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for the time. You're welcome, sir. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.